Rusty Quill presents. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. West Side Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. Previously on Scars in Time. The mystery of the rough wall in the basement has for the most part, been unveiled. Having come face to face with the doctor's insanity and the inhuman changes warping his body, Ash barely escapes a fate worse than death in his secret underground clinic. More importantly, she's learned the name of the glowing creature that's haunted her every step since the visions of her 47th birthday. The Poisoned Muse. Now that Ash has made it home, however, it's clear things have gone terribly wrong in Guncotton while she's been gone. If she's really been gone at all. Without further ado, Scars in Time, Chapter 16. The Return. I hugged Darcy too tight, and that irritated her, but I didn't let go. Hey, okay, she said, pushing at me. I held on anyway, surviving a few more pushes, a pinch, and then her eventual collapse on top of me. Is this what you want? I'm late for work. I will crush you to death, Ashley Little Tree, and you will die, and I will go to prison. I heard her say my last name, our last name, and pulled the weight of her tighter against me. Sorry, I said. I just love you. She relaxed and kissed my neck, my hairline. I love you too, she said. But I gotta go. Darcy was fully dressed for the day, wearing sneakers, a white cotton button-up, and jeans. 
The smile on her face barely broke through the exhaustion dragging at her eyes. She touched my cheek and stood, running her thumb over my eyebrow. I held on to her wrist until she broke away gently, heading for the bathroom. I rubbed my eyes and sat up, looking around the room. It was our weird room, where the furniture seemed melted into the floor and the bed was high and somehow unfamiliar. Memories of the time I had spent in that odd fugue superimposed themselves over my eyes for a second, and I saw myself getting slapped around by the doctor, saw myself hacking and coughing and slowly dying with Mike as my husband. It's nice you're at least talking to me today, Darcy said. She spoke with her fingers partially in her mouth. I noticed she was pulling her lips up and down and craning her neck to get a better look inside her own mouth. Satisfied, she turned toward me. Did you finish writing or something? Finish writing? I asked. Uh, what are you doing in there? Darcy sighed and took a long look at herself in the mirror. Checking, she said. Just checking for something. What? I asked. Cavities? I grinned at her and held my arms up at my sides, reciting the old Crest commercial. We make holes in teeth. We make holes in teeth. She rolled her eyes and laughed, returning to the bedside. No, she said. There's just that thing going around and I've been seeing more and more of it. She shrugged. It's out of my hands to deal with and Bobby's been helping get the sicker people out to better equipped hospitals. I just... I want to make sure I'm not bringing anything home. Well, thank you for that, I said, pulling on her sleeves and kissing her. She wasn't as passionate as I'd hoped she'd be, but she was late for work. I really have to go, okay, babe? She said, pulling back and giving me a small smile. Her eyes dropped to the ground for just a second. Are you... Are you going to cook tonight, or should I just eat out again? In all honesty, I was half worried I'd missed my morning chores and that Christine was somewhere in the house getting ready to scold me for being late. Or worse, sleeping in her room. Really... I'd already spiritually prepared myself for a day of chores, including cooking dinner. Sure, I'll cook, I said, pushing myself out of bed and stretching. I felt momentarily lightheaded, but clarity returned a second later. Darcy raised her eyebrows. Really? She asked. You're going to cook? Sure, why not? She let out a breath and shook her head. Nothing, she said, walking into the hall. You've been so out of it lately, it's just nice to see you again, I guess. Oh, she turned back to me. You remembered Su Yen is coming into town, right? Decades of absent-mindedness saved me from having to know what she was talking about. Darcy just rolled her eyes. Your agent, Su Yen, she's coming to town today. You're supposed to be meeting her tomorrow, but she's... She's Suyin, and I know she's going to be here today. You're going to have to go find her and keep her company. Okay, I said. Do you remember when? Noon or something. I, I really have to go, babe. 
Darcy said. We said our goodbyes to each other, and then she was gone. A few minutes later, I was showered and dressed and wandering around our house, looking over the mostly finished renovations. Even without going outside or seeing a calendar, I could tell it was spring. Probably even the same month, maybe even day, as when I'd left the doctor and Coraline and that, that muse back in the past. Thinking of that made me remember the rough wall in our basement, that thick and hasty concrete barrier between all of us and that awful fucking clinic he'd built. I shuddered. Then I made breakfast. The quality of the food was much better in this time than in the past, though I don't know if that's because of the unnatural traveling or simply because the stuff that Ellison sold back then was of dubious quality. Probably the latter, if I had to guess. Our fridge wasn't well stocked, but we had enough eggs and cheese for me to make a decent-sized omelette. Three eggs, in fact, and a few sticks of bacon. I was terribly hungry, and even eating all that only barely sated my appetite. I'd hardly recognized myself in the mirror, but I was me again. Fifty years old and slightly warped in the face from my childhood accident. That meant I was in, at least, a world where Mike was dead and Darcy and I were still together. That alone was more than enough for me. The house, meanwhile, had gotten all the more beautiful. Most of the dark, old wood remained, but Uber and his crew had managed to replace what needed to go in a way that didn't make the house look Frankensteinian. Moreover, there were lights throughout the entire home now mostly ensconced in the upper part of the walls or by the floorboards. Those flicked on and off by motion sensors when I walked by them. While the upper lights remained lit for a long time after I entered a room, the windows had all been switched out with modern, dark-framed counterparts that blended so much smoother than I would have expected. Everything else remained, for the most part, untouched. Most notably, the massive tile inlay in the central hall was still in place and bearing its odd, ugly, and slightly human-shaped stain. I rubbed the toe of my sneaker at it, but nothing happened. I sighed and looked around the rest of the house, wondering what else might have to be done. Probably not much. I craned my head to the ceiling two stories overhead waiting for the tap of a typewriter key and the thin trail of dust that would accompany it. Nothing. I thought of going upstairs and decided against it. I hoped, beyond hope, in fact, that I was terribly mentally ill and the months of fugue had been some stress hallucination brought on by writing. I had deluded myself into thinking I was a maid in some attempt to keep myself at the keys. I sighed. No matter how I looked at it, no news was good news in this case. I bit my lip and then went to the kitchen to look for my lamp. It wasn't there, of course. I went into the basement, half expecting every horrible sort of thing and finding nothing at all out of the ordinary. At best, some light detritus still remained from the installation of our updated electrical system. A few pipes lay scattered in a loose sort of stack beside the rough wall, which was fully intact, though I noticed more about it now that I knew it more intimately 
I never, for instance, noticed the few errant brick faces showing through the unevenly applied bits of concrete, or the subtle dip in the facade where I knew the door to that little receptionist's office would be. I ran my hands over the space there, holding my breath until I was sure it was firm and real and not going to disintegrate in a pebbly shower as the doctor himself burst through. But it was there, and as substantial as any of the other walls in the house. I tapped it, and then wrapped my knuckles on it. Finally, I kicked it, first with my toe and then with the whole bottom of my foot. Hitting the concrete hard enough, the impact traveled painfully up my calf and into my knee. Satisfied, I left. I walked into gun cotton, dragging my red plastic card over the cobbles and then across the much smoother bridge into town. Again, it was odd to see the new where I was now familiar with the old. The strip, all the modern brick buildings seemed so permanent and indelible compared to the camp that had once stood here. I wondered how much of the road those men had been building the last day I visited Ellison's still remained beneath the strip's blacktop. Hey, Miss Littletree. I heard a voice yell from across the street. It was little Albert, grinning up a storm and looking both ways before jogging across the virtually empty road. His legs disappeared into a mist so thick I was more worried he'd shatter an ankle in an unseen pothole than be hit by one of the gently idling cars dallying up and down the street. Hey, Albert, I said. I felt oddly familiar with the boy, even though it had been months since I'd seen him. But had it been months? My life had continued without me leaving a space that stretched gray and flat and featureless between then and now, like overexposed film stock. But there were things I could see in that dead time. Slight imprints of feelings and half-remembered images that only somewhat felt like my own. Little etchings where light could cast shadows through the negative. You going to the store, Miss Littletree? He asked. I'll push that cart for you there and back. Just 15 bucks. That's two directions for the price of one. He smiled and then hiccuped a bit before I could answer him. He turned and coughed, hard, doubling over for a second and then riding himself. He gave me a sheepish grin. Don't worry, I'm just allergic or something. It's fine, I said. You aren't allergic to me, are you? I gave him a wry smile and he gave me a look. That's crazy. You can't be allergic to a person, he said. You might change your mind about that when you're older, I said. In my heart, I hoped it wouldn't be the sort of allergic old man Ellison had been in that departed century. I fished through my wallet, finding the sort of cash salad that came with using paper money for most of your transactions. I had two fives, two singles, and a twenty, which I pulled out and handed to him. How about I pay you 20 and we call it even? I asked. The boy was so transparently innocent I could tell he was struggling whether to tell me that amount was actually more than what he'd offered. Eventually, he just slid the cash into his pocket. Uh, okay, 20 it is, he said, falling in step with me on the way to the store. He kept up with the mild coughing here and there, chattering all the while. 
Both of us turned when the incline pulled in at the bottom of the hill behind us. Nobody got off. Man, we're going to have to start carrying lanterns in the daytime again soon, Albert muttered. Why is that? I asked. He shrugged. People don't tell me anything, he said. Sean gets really serious about it, though, and this is probably the first time I'll be allowed out when the fog gets bad. The fog? I asked. Yeah, he replied, kicking his foot so the thick mist on the ground splashed like slow water. This. It gets real, real bad sometimes, and everybody stays in their houses for a while and has to carry around lanterns. I thought it was just so you could see, but, well, I don't know. Sean gets real weird about it. He shrugged again, and I didn't press him. We were at the store anyway. Wow, what a great story. But I have no fucking idea what's going on in it to you. Maybe it'd be a little easier to understand if I had access to like a written version of the show to follow along with and read back through. Maybe even some, uh, I don't know, behind the story information to clear up some of my, my fucking questions. Oh, wait, right there. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it says right there. Join the West Side Fairy Tales Patreon today and get access to behind the story audio programs and fully laid out chapters of this story, Scars in Time, and most of the West Side Fairy Tales back catalog for just five measly dollars a month. Wow, what a deal. Oh, it even says here you can get special merch packs and signed posters if you give a, a, a more generous donation. Uh, that means he needs your money, people. This isn't a fucking charity. Okay, go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today and subscribe for excellent behind-the-story content and more. That's patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. Link is in the description. And don't forget to watch my show if it's for... Ah, come on! I'm not doing this for free! Now back to our story, already in progress. Lele, who usually minded Ellison's around this time of day, wasn't behind the register. Instead, it was the sad-eyed man I knew as Calvin Beaumont, though I'd never introduced myself to him. He was paging through some old book by a local author, a woman from Charleston. I said hi to him, and he nodded at me without looking up from the page. I gave Albert a short rundown of what I needed when he asked if he could help me fill my cart. I protested at first, but relented when he told me that the sooner we got done, the sooner he could find the next job. The cart was fully loaded by the time I got to the register, and Albert was slightly out of breath from running around Ellison's at full bore. Calvin reluctantly set his book down and started checking out item after item. Getting pretty foggy out there, huh? I asked. He gave me a look, a slow and indignant roll of his eyes, and then went back to sliding the items over the barcode scanner. I thought about asking him something else, but didn't bother. The beeps were the only sound next to Albert's slightly heavy breathing. It was him, eventually, who broke the silence. 
Man, Mr. Beaumont, you getting sick too? Albert asked, pushing himself up onto the counter with his hands until his feet were dangling over the floor. You're being real quiet. Calvin slapped Albert's fingers with a quick snapping motion, and Albert dropped back down, pretending to nurse his freshly wounded hand. I told you about getting up on this counter, boy, Calvin said. He had a slightly effeminate lilt to his words that betrayed his membership in the tribe. He noticed that I noticed in a second and flashed me a look that said, Keep it to yourself, lesbian. I almost laughed. Calvin pushed the last item to the other side of the barcode scanner and sighed. Do you need a bag? Bags? He asked. I shook my head. Do you need me to bag any of this? For you? I looked down at the counter and then back at him. No, I'm... I'm fine, I said. Of course you are. He snapped back at me, flipping his book open and sitting down. I realized I hadn't even paid yet and looked for my groceries to the cart. Uh, I said, not knowing how to start. You can have her pay for those or are they free? Albert asked pushing himself up on the counter so that his forearms lay flat across it. It was tall enough he could barely see Calvin when the man was sitting down. Calvin narrowed his eyes and slammed his book shut, which was impressive given it was a small paperback. Cause I'm sure there's some chocolate she forgot to scan if she don't have to pay, and like a Mountain Dew too, and whatever those box things are, the Sean. God damn it, Calvin said standing and tapping the face of the checkout machine while Albert chuckled beside me. He'd hop down from the counter as a necessary precaution. Calvin gave him a look that made me believe that caution was warranted. It's 102.38. Cash or charge? Calvin asked. I handed him my card and he swiped it like he was trying to cut the register in half. Boy, you're mad today, Mr. Beaumont, Albert said, grinning at him. The look Calvin shot his way could blacken butter. Albert just laughed. I'm going to tell Lele and Bobby that you're being grumpy again and you're going to get in trouble. Alvin snapped my card down onto the counter and then turned on Albert, jabbing a finger in his direction. You rat on me, boy, and I'll drag you out your bed and lock you in the old town sewers with the cads. You understand me? Albert stopped laughing and stiffened a little but he stuck his chin out all the same. You ain't got the stones, old man, he said, clearly repeating a line he'd heard from someone else. It was funny enough that I chuckled some. Calvin rounded on me instantly, pointing his finger at me as well, but not saying whatever it was he had on his mind. Clearly, this was causing him some discomfort. I crossed my arms. What? I asked. Shrugging, I don't know why you're mad at me. Are you mad at me or are you just having a bad day? (sighs) Woman, he said, shaking his head. Then he took a breath. Mrs. Littletree, he continued a second later, much calmer. If I asked you, can you leave this town forever, right now, what would be your answer? Think real hard. I gave him a confused look, but found myself thinking over the question anyway. It was odd how powerful the answer was. 
almost like it wasn't an answer in my heart, but a permission writ into the vapor of my soul. Yes, I said. I almost belched the answer, as though it had come from somewhere deep in my stomach instead of just my mouth. Calvin waved a hand in Albert's direction. And you, young Albert, can you leave Guncotton? He asked. Not yet, Albert said. His small body seemed to rock a little when he said those words, and he shivered as well. Is it misty outside, or perfectly normal? Calvin asked Albert. It's actually getting pretty bad, Albert said. I can barely see my feet, and Calvin cut him off and turned to me. You can see the mist outside, and I can too, but ask me if I can leave gun cotton, he said. Can you, um... Can you leave Gun Cotton? I asked. No, he said loudly. I felt a chill that made me shiver. No, no, and no. I cannot. I can't. I can't. I shan't. I shan't leave. And ever since you arrived here, the mist has come back out of its seasonal rotation, I might add, and has been getting worse. Worse? It hasn't been like this for going on ten years now, and God knows what a fucking mess that was. I looked at Albert. He was about that old. Oh, he wasn't here yet, Calvin said. All them out at the big house are usually from out of town. Calvin took a deep breath when he saw how uncomfortable that had made Albert. I'm sorry, Albert, he said in a much softer voice. It's okay, Albert said, though it was clear it wasn't. Up until now, I had forgotten that Albert was an orphan. Both I and he had been reminded. Why don't you leave? Calvin asked. What's in that house that's keeping you here? Your wife is the doctor up at the clinic on the hill? Okay, but you don't have to live here. You could just as well live in a nice house in the woods up near Legree or Targrady and commute. Why live here? I looked at him for a long second, thinking of the oddness that house had imposed on my life. Where once I had merely been the victim of my visions, my delusions, now I was an active participant in them. At best, I was fully losing my mind and giving myself over to insanity. At worst, there was an unexplained malevolence in that place, a lingering bit of pain that liked to dance with me, liked to cajole and try to entrap me. That poisoned muse and her damnable typewriter. But was it hers? I wasn't sure. I didn't know if it was mine either, come to think of it. I remembered that sick woman, a third version of myself to round out the trio of ashes that all shared keys to my home. Me, the lunatic, her, the rider, and the third, the mother of that girl, Emily, Mike's wife. The woman I'd called a coward. Mrs. Littletree, Calvin asked, snapping me back to reality. I looked around the store, trying to ground myself again. I opened my mouth to say something and then shook my head. He sighed and his expression softened. Okay, fine then. I guess you're not going anywhere, but if you aren't, I think you should... Albert began coughing. The sounds were harsh and especially worrying, coming from a child that small. 
I looked from Calvin to the boy and back. I think we need to go, I said. I'll walk him back to Old Town. Calvin gave the kid a worried look and then nodded at me. You should consider leaving, he said, looking resigned. I'm not trying to be rude. Just consider it. I will, I said, knowing I already had, knowing full well that I planned to stay. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Children, children, gather around and place your hand in the air. That's right. Fingers split wide, wide, wide so the wind can pass between them. Carry that sweet scent of trade on to the nose of the witcher. We are gathered here today in non-existence, awaiting the strike of the pen, the clatter of the keyboard... The moment when I might be introduced to the ears of the masses so that our work can spring forth anew in the hearts of millions. But that we are carried on the wings of angels. Say true, our words must be electrified. Amen. Our words must be clarified. Amen. Our words must be carried wide. Amen. So go out there, little brothers, little sisters, and spread the gospel on social media. Put us on Reddit. Put us on the Facebook. And put us on the Twitter. Praise her. Share us far and wide so that I might become and my story made clear. At WS Fairy Tales on Twitter. Westside Fairy Tales on Facebook and Instagram. The link tree is in the description. Praise her name. Praise her. Mm, praise her, yes. And let us together drive this sin from gun cotton. Mm. Raise your hands now. Raise your hands. Now. 
Now back to our story already in progress. We'd made it as far as the bridge when Albert collapsed. It wasn't a terrible fall. He just slumped to his knees, the momentum of the cart carrying him a few feet before his grip failed. He would have slapped his face into the pavement if I hadn't caught him, but I did. I'd been watching him closely, in fact, ever since we left the store. The kid had insisted on earning his money by pushing the cart, which wasn't a tall order given the strip was flat and level all the way to the old town bridge. I'd let him, sticking close behind just in case something like this happened. When I turned him over, letting him lay on his back, I saw a scrim of thin, black mucus covering his chin. I wiped it away quickly, not caring if I would ruin my shirt thinking only of the way Mr. Blot's face had split and peeled and burned when that same stuff had been on him. This close to the boy, I could see a few of those same black spots around his mouth. His skin was much darker than Blot's, dark enough to hide those tiny black lesions. He took a deep breath and tried to sit up. I helped him to the side of the bridge, leaning him against the guardrail. Oh, boy, he said. His eyes were unfocused and wandering, like a boxer post-knockout. I think I need to sit down for a bit, Mrs. Little Tree. He turned his head and coughed. A fat chunk of black gristle came free of his mouth and landed on the pavement beside him. I grimaced, waiting for it to start smoking. Thankfully, it didn't. Wait here a second, I said. I dragged the shopping cart across the bridge to where it wouldn't be in the way of any passing vehicles, then picked Albert up off the ground. He wasn't exactly light, but he wasn't that heavy either. None of the muscle I'd built as the Starlings made remained, but the knowledge of how to carry a load had stuck with me. It was, oddly, more valuable. I managed to get Albert to the incline, which was still at the lower hill station. The six or so stairs I had to climb to get to the platform were hard enough I knew there wasn't a chance I'd be able to carry him all the way up the hill to the clinic. I set him on the seat inside and sat beside him, giving myself a second to rest while trying to figure out how to get the car moving. To my surprise, the door slid shut on their own and the incline began climbing the hill. I wasn't surprised when I found Bobby waiting outside the doors when they opened. He was alone, flat drop of red in a canvas of gray and white. The clouds were growing thick and black overhead. The mist was lighter here on the hill. It still covered his feet. 
The embroidered red feather on the patch over his left eye seemed to glow. Hello, he said. Hello, Bobby, I replied. My heart had stilled in my chest as I remembered the vision of him for when I first moved to town. His head and face stretching, those terrible teeth. He gave me a resigned look, more disappointed than angry, and stepped inside the car to pick up Albert. He cradled the boy in his arms like an infant, looking into his face with that helpless sort of concern parents have when they look at a sick child. This is your fault, he said, turning and walking away. I followed him, wanting to see Albert all the way to the clinic. Bobby didn't seem to mind, though his tone didn't change. What? How? I asked, honestly wanting to know. I felt like a leaf in the breeze, had felt that way for a long time. Even before the move to Gun Cotton, before the fire that had forced us out of Boulder, I hadn't felt in control of anything, so it was hard to understand how I was responsible for this. Because you want, he said. You desire. And so here we are. I stormed in front of him and stopped him moving for just a second. Then I remembered Albert and got out of the way. The boy was lightly delirious now, taking shallow breaths and muttering how he needed to talk to Sean before the older boy got worried about him. What the fuck are you talking about? I asked. This whole town has a bad fucking talking and riddles problem. What in the shit do you want me to do? You want me to leave? You want me to burn the fucking house down? I have no idea what's going on. How? Bobby asked giving me a direct look. This isn't your first rodeo, Ash. I can smell it on you, you know. Your connection with the five, with... He gestured broadly around with his chin, but I knew he meant the mist covering the ground. With this... So what was it? Did you make a deal with one of them? Did you kill one, eat one, what? I don't... I started, thinking about my odd past. Mike, the Umbrella Man. And now my present with the things in my new home. The Doctor. The Poisoned Muse. When? When I was a teenager, a thing started killing my friends. A fat man with a... A screwy face and an umbrella and, and hooks for fingers. I didn't know what was happening until I found out this boy in my friend's group. A kid named Michael Colin had made a deal with something in that. The Umbrella Man was just the collection agent. He traded his friends, Bobby said in a knowing way. If the boy in his arms fatigued him at all, he gave no sign of it. Did you find out for what? I nodded. He could control people if he touched them, make them do things and make them feel good about doing those things. I shuddered. It all happened so fast, he... He tried to get me and I... I took a breath. I ran, and he got hurt real bad. Then I... I finished him off. Well done, then, 
Bobby said. I was surprised enough to shoot a glance at him, but his expression was unreadable. We arrived at the clinic and he stopped outside. The place was little more than another of the regular houses on the block, but there were dozens of obvious and subtle modifications to it. Mostly handicap access, things you might not notice if you'd never lived around the medical world before. Or had to rely on them yourself. Stay out here, please. He said. I'll be back in a second and we can continue this, but your wife is inside and you'll be a distraction. Okay? I nodded and he disappeared through the door. I got a glimpse of just how bad it was in that brief swing of the double door leading into the clinic. Beds filled even in the waiting room, crowding what might have been a large living room back when the building was still a residential house. Patients sat or stood waiting, all of them coughing into rags with their elbows. I could see black spots and smears and flecks on their clothing and the tissues they pressed to their faces. Even more, I could smell the sickness wafting out the open door. It poured over me like acid rain. This boy, your friend, Bobby said when he returned. He was only gone a second. Was he marked in any way? On his hand or chest? His face? Is Albert okay? I asked. No, Bobby said pointedly. His solitary green eye flashed. It had the same sort of electric radiance as my ghost. My poisoned muse. I wondered for the first time what sort of connection they all had. What these odd and corrupted and powerful people all shared. A mark, did he have one? Yes, I said, thinking for a moment. I thought it was a tattoo on his hand, but it was actually this ugly purplish scar. I described what it looked like and Bobby cracked his jaw. A blind horizon. He said. That's Yith, then, which explains the collection agent. Your umbrella man. He pinched the bridge of his nose. But what does that have to do with you? What are you in all of this? Your friend is the one who made the deal and who didn't deliver. What happened after? I hesitated. I found a typewriter in this new house. I said along with that thing's umbrella and a note. Bobby looked at me. It said, for services rendered. I paused, kneading my palm with my thumb, an unfamiliar gesture. I know it was for me and not just left there. I, I can't explain how, but I know that for sure. I racked my brain, knowing there was something I was missing. Something I couldn't quite remember. Then it hit me. It was signed with just a few cartoony little shapes. I said, all squiggly, like the person riding could barely draw on a straight line. They looked like a crescent moon and stars. I shrugged and looked at Bobby, flinching when he grabbed me by my shoulder. His left eye was almost glowing enough that it seemed to be casting a bit of light onto his cheek. Say that again, he said in a soft voice. It, 
It looked like a crescent moon with some stars around it. I said, What? He let me go as my voice trailed off, covering his right eye with his hand, then pinching the bottom of his eye patch with his left thumb and forefinger. Did it look like this? He asked, lifting the eye patch. Something that was not quite an eye lay beneath the patch, glowing more brightly than Bobby's right eye. It was radiant, in fact, to the point I could see through its translucent yellow-white surface. Where an iris might be were those same characters I'd seen on the note. The crescent moon and the stars. A starred crescent, Bobby said, though his mouth didn't move when he spoke. I realized we weren't standing on the street in gun cotton anymore. We weren't anywhere. In all directions around us extended a black and utterly empty void. An absence of space which may have been infinite or only just big enough to hold us both. The only thing that remained was the white mist, which in this dark place lay like lace over the eyes. I couldn't tell if it was between us or around us, or even part of us. Yes, I said. My mouth moved, but there wasn't air to breathe or conduct my words. I wasn't choking, I felt like I should be. Then it was over, and we were standing on the street again, though everything seemed suddenly more substantial. The sound of people coughing and moving around in the clinic was almost a roar. Bobby was laughing to himself. Jesus fuck, he finally said. The plot fucking thickens. He smiled at me. You don't even know what kind of shit you're in. Hell, I don't. And I'm supposed to be some sort of expert on this horse shit. What the fuck are you talking about? I asked. He shrugged. Destiny, chaos, things like that. He said. I will apologize for earlier, though. I thought you were just another idiot who took a bad deal and brought all your fucking problems to my town, but... That isn't the case. He started laughing, not in a way that he seemed to enjoy, and then crossed his arms and looked up at the sky. (sighs) That is not the case at all. What is then? I asked, actually stepping forward and pushing him. He felt like any normal human, though I half expected he would just remain rooted there like a wall. He stumbled back a few paces and gave me a sad look though he was still chuckling. God damn it, you fuck, I need help! I tried kicking at him and he moved out of the way. I don't know what I'm doing! I felt a hitch in my chest and then I was crying. I turned away from him and rubbed my eyes, sniffling and then getting a hold of myself. To his credit, or maybe against it, he let me go through that episode without trying to involve himself. No there, there, or touches on the shoulder, just distance and silence. It was something I found I oddly appreciated. There's nothing you can do, he said. Nothing but roll the dice, he sighed and cracked his neck. There are five forces, I guess you'd say, in the universe. These five, the five, have personalities of sorts at times and exist like this in relation to each other. 
He made a cross with his fingers. At the top, you have life, he said. Not just being alive, but life, capital L. Being born, dying, killing, eating. Trading seconds of existence fairly across the board a little. Work here to bring up a crop, a little slaughter there to feed yourself. The mold that kills a baby to propagate more mold. All that sort of awful, wonderful stuff. He pointed at the bottom. Here we have death, he said. And not stupid little D death like when people you love pass on or when stars die, but big D death. The slow evaporation of heat throughout the universe. The unfinished works of poets. The absolute sublimation of human souls and plant souls and fungal souls, all that stuff. Fungi have souls, I asked. We were having this ridiculous conversation on a misty street in gun cotton, West Virginia. I felt exposed, like someone would stumble upon us and realize Bobby was insane, and I was too for listening to him. But everything he said made sense, in a way. Or rather, it was like I was being reminded of something I already knew. In the center, he said. You have all the binding forces of nature, small force, big force, quarks, and gluons, but also the deeper bonds, secrets, and secret things. He dropped his hands. Then, on the left, the right as you're looking at it, you have order. The gradual simplification of existence, paths being taken, possibilities ending, the literal manifestation of potential energy being expanded into its kinetic form, order. He tapped his eye patch. But you, Ash, he said, chuckling slightly. You fell in with the goddamn right hand of destiny. Chaos. Potential possibilities, both good and bad. The only one of the five that basically just does whatever the fuck he wants. He sighed and nodded. They all have signs, lines, circles, hands of sticks... And they all have their own little rules and ways about them, all but him. He whose sign is the starred crescent. What does that mean? I asked. It means you roll the dice and see what happens. He said. Everything you do right now is in the service of chaos. He might have given you that typewriter for something you haven't even done yet. They don't give a shit about our perception of the fourth dimension. You are the sum of your existence, for better or worse, the moment you meet one. He scuffed the ground with his shoe. Basically, we might already be dead. He said, well, not we. I don't die here. I don't die for a long time, if you can even call it dying. But you might have damned and doomed my town just by coming here. Not that you ever would have not come here. Fuck! He ran his hands through his hair, making me half worried he might knock that damn eye patch loose. I was not made for this, he said to the sky. He looked at me. It's a pain in the ass not being in control. To the point that sometimes you crush what's in your hands. You're so scared of letting go. I'm sorry I threatened you that first day we met. None of this is your fault. 
what all of it is, right? I asked. Yep, he said. So what do I do? Roll the dice, he said. Play the game and hope you're a player, not a piece. He stretched his hand out to me and I took it. Good luck, I guess. Thanks, I said. Hey. Hey, you. There's new merch in the merch store. So go fucking buy some, you hear me? You wanna, you wanna fucking shirt, bro? You want a sick fucking shirt, bro? Go to the fucking merch store and check out our new shirt. It's a collage of all that pretty artwork Missy Yui puts together for season four. Fucking beautiful. You want to be fucking beautiful, don't you? Then go buy a shirt. You want to stay fucking beautiful? You better buy two fucking shirts. You better buy a fucking mug too and a fucking beanie. Don't let me find out you aren't wearing the merch. You better go to westsidefairytales.com slash merch and buy something. Yeah. Westsidefairytales.com slash merch. See you soon. Now back to our story already in progress. I rode the incline down because I was nervous about taking the stairs. Something was building in my chest, I don't quite know what. A feeling like fire beginning to lick up the insides of my throat. Nothing made sense other than the very real feeling that I was in over my head. Everything was so much bigger than me. And any slight deviation might send me reeling toward death. Or damnation. I honestly didn't even know the stakes. I found my shopping cart right where I left it, though some of the raw meat was missing. I saw the empty packaging for a tray of ground beef laying in the tall grass beneath the bridge. Any other day I would have climbed down and collected the trash, but not today. I dragged the cart over the cobbles and then brought everything inside, just on the off chance Darcy came home early. I didn't want her to be mad about groceries left outside, insanely enough. Then I went upstairs, intent on getting the typewriter and doing... What? I don't know exactly. Maybe just typing, and everybody got better, and the typewriter disappeared forever. It would fix everything. Though I doubted it. Still, I knew the answers lay up there in my garret. Somewhere beyond those blacked-out windows I would find the solution. The workers had gotten the house wired to the point that electricity and electric light reached the third-floor attic. The fourth floor was still dark, however, and I found myself casting my hands around for the ladder. By the time I touched it, I could hear the falling keys. Someone was using the typewriter. I climbed up and pressed against the hatch, but it wouldn't open. It was locked from above, or at least covered by something heavy. I banged my fist on the boards. Let me in! I yelled. The typing didn't stop, so I hunched up beneath the hatch and slammed my back into it until I felt give. 
I screamed for her to let me in, but she ignored me. Then the rung of the ladder snapped under my feet, and I might have broken my neck if I hadn't caught myself the last second. The typewriter stopped. Stalled. I felt the absence of that noise in my bones. It was like the world around me was calcifying. When I moved down to the bottom of the ladder, the air itself was like syrup. Find the artist, she whispered through the gaps between the slats and the hatch. She began coughing and I could hear something come free of her and clatter onto the floorboards. I already told you. She shifted and I heard a few dozen short strokes on the typewriter. The air moved and brightened and brightened until I had to squint. I realized there was actually a light on in the fourth floor and looked down to find a lantern, my lantern, burning away on the ground. The basement, she said from the hatch. And this time the coughing went on for a long while. Again something came loose, and I jumped backwards as a deluge of smoking black goo poured through the slats onto the ladder. The ladder popped, smoked, sizzled, and collapsed onto itself with a loud plop. Jesus fucking Christ, I said under my breath. Hurry, she said, and the typing began anew. The air began to move, reeking of the chemical foulness that had melted the ladder. I ran downstairs, the lantern casting shadows despite the newly installed lights. I was panting by the time I got to the basement, where I found a steel-headed sledgehammer waiting for me against the rough wall. It felt substantial in my hands, almost too heavy, but it needed to be. I set the lantern aside and lifted the hammer, finally ready to break through into the darkness beyond. scars in time. It's clear that the events Ash's presence in Guncotton has set into motion haven't been slowed in the least by her return to her own time. After a lifetime of letting herself be slowed, sidelined, and stalled, she's ready to break through into the shadowed history of her house's basement. What she finds on the other side of the rough wall will be the beginning of the end of the life she's known for 30 years. But knowing she has to face it, and wanting to, will make all the difference. I hope you'll join us next episode for Scars in Time, Chapter 17, The Clinic. And until next time, as always... Stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. 
Original audio filmed on location in Sutton, West Virginia, and Louisville, Kentucky. Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2021, WSF Productions, LLC. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.